And if you would please uh, take your scripture this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be reading this morning from Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 12. If uh, you're using your pew Bible, that's page 838, 838 in the Bible in front of you. Uh, Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. We've been uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark, as you, as you know, under the broad uh, theme of getting the, the Gospel right. Uh, what is the, uh, the good news, the Evangel? What is it that we are to be passionate about and thankful for? And what is it to be, what should be driving our every moment of living? And so we've been walking with the Lord Lord Jesus, and most recently we've been seeing that uh, Jesus was not always appreciated and that, in fact, uh, his uh, ministry was often uh, opposed uh, strongly, and that's what we've been reading in these last number of verses, especially here in chapter 3, where the last verse we read was that there were those who went out to plan uh, to uh, destroy him. And so, uh, we pick up the Word of God there, Mark 3, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew uh, with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for help. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this gospel. Uh, We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that uh, we're dependent again this morning, both the one who preaches and for all of us who hear upon the work of your Holy Spirit, that these words would not simply remain uh, words upon the page, uh, but by your wonderful and mysterious work, uh, you would take these words inspired by the Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit indeed today would take them and write them uh, even upon our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a hundred years ago, in 1923, as you may know, uh, there was this uh, uh, well-known book written by one of our fathers in the faith in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a book called Christianity and Liberalism, written in 1923 in uh, the early 20th century in America, where there was a great uh, battle going on for the, uh, the, the truth of Scripture, whether or not it was true, uh, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, and the truth of whether or not, as we read these Gospels, that these miracles we read of, these supernatural, wonderful works, whether or not they were actually true, or whether or not they could just be uh, explained away. So in 1923, uh, J. Gresson Machen wrote this in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Whatever decision is made, the issue should certainly not be obscured. The issue does not concern individual miracles, even so important a miracle as the virgin birth, It really concerns all miracles. And the question concerning all miracles is simply the question of the acceptance or rejection of the Savior that the New Testament presents. 
Reject the miracles, he said, and you have in Jesus the fairest flower of humanity who made such an impression upon his followers that after his death, they couldn't believe that he perished, but experienced hallucinations in which they thought they saw him risen from the dead. Accept the miracles and you have a savior who came voluntarily into this world for our salvation, suffered for our sins upon the cross, rose again from the dead by the power of God and ever lives to make intercession for us. The difference between those two views, Machen said, is the difference between two totally diverse religions. And then he said this. It is high time that this issue should be faced. It's high time that the misleading use of traditional phrases should be abandoned and men should speak their full mind. Shall we accept the Jesus of the New Testament as our Savior or shall we reject him with the liberal church? Now, you need this morning also uh, to abandon those traditional phrases and to simply speak your full mind. Do you accept this Jesus or do you reject this Jesus of whom we've been reading? This is the question of the Gospel of Mark. The conflict with the Pharisees has reached a decisive point. There's been five confrontations in chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3. And they led to this conclusion in verse 6 last time. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Why were they doing this? Well, you remember Jesus had been forgiving sins. He'd been healing those with fevers. He'd been healing a man with a withered hand. He'd been caring for the needs of his disciples as they plucked grain. Uh, He had been uh, ministering to folks and caring for them and healing them, restoring them. That's what he's been doing. And the Pharisees uh, joined hands with the Herodians. Now, this is pretty strange. The Herodians, as you imagine, were supporters of King Herod, um, who was uh, ruling on behalf of the Roman occupation of Israel. Now, this is strange because the Herodians, you'd think, would be uh, the natural enemies of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious separatists of the day. They didn't want anything to do with the government. And the Herodians were those who supported Herod and the government. But here, Pharisees link arms with the Herodians for the purpose of destroying Jesus, who was clearly perceived as a threat uh, to them. As we go along here, we need to remember, of course, that as these plottings and councils are going on and people hating Jesus and going after Jesus, you've got to remember here that this, remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So these things would have affected Jesus. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience Uh, through what he suffered. So don't lose sight of the fact that this is flesh and blood Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, and people want to destroy him. And they link arms to do so. It's really a sad irony, of course, because Jesus has been healing, he's been restoring and forgiving and saving. He's the bridegroom and he comes with good news. The kingdom of God is at hand, but they want him, uh, they want him, him dead. And so this passage this morning that we read uh, begins with the withdrawal of Jesus. The Pharisees and Herodians wanted him dead and are planning how to do it. Uh, But Jesus had not come into the world 
uh, to march according to the tune or to the drums of the Pharisees' plans. Uh, he came to do his father's will in his father's way uh, according to his father's timing. And so at this point he withdraws. Mark mentions in his gospel at least 11 times when Jesus will withdraw or step aside from his work and his ministry to be alone with his father, to be with his disciples, and to pray. And so that's what happens here. Jesus withdraws with his disciples. Three things we want to see here this morning and why uh, we can learn something from even the demons. First thing is this. The crowds keep coming to Jesus. Verse 7 and 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Three times we read that word crowd. The great crowd followed. The great crowd had heard all that Jesus was doing. The crowd gathered around him. This word is a, just means an exceptionally large gathering of people. The sea here is the Sea of Galilee. Uh, my son David is here today and with two friends from California. And they were just at the Sea of Galilee uh, three or four weeks ago uh, on a trip with their college. They were right here. In this passage, huge throngs are seeking out Jesus. There's men and women and children, we imagine, young and old, are coming to him, having heard all that he was doing. And the Bible makes a point of saying they're coming from everywhere. They're from Galilee. That's where Jesus has been just doing recently his wondrous works in these towns. They come from uh, Judea in the the south and Jerusalem, its main city. hundred miles uh, from the south they come. They come in from Idumea, which is, which is below Judea, the ancient land of Edom. This is actually the land from which King Herod comes. Uh, they're coming from even there. They're coming from beyond the Jordan River to the east, uh, known as the Decapolis, ten cities from Perea. And they're coming from the north and the west on the seacoast from Tyre and Sidon. And so they're, this crowd's coming from all over. This is kind of a wonderful picture of, uh, of the... Uh, the later mission of the church to go to all the nations. But here, here they're coming to Jesus. And later in his ministry, Jesus will go to many of these places himself. As the church is called to go out. But here they're coming to Jesus. So put it, put it this way. They're coming from everywhere. They're coming from South Jersey, Baltimore, D.C., uh, Virginia, beyond the Delaware, Jersey City, New York City. They come. So you get the impression in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus never wanted for crowds. That was never a problem for Jesus. And here, in fact, the pressing in of the people is so intense, Jesus prepares uh, an escape route, the Bible says. And he told his disciples, verse 9, to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they uh, crush him. It means have a boat in constant readiness, close at hand. In other words, if someone said, Peter probably has the car running and the passenger door open as... Uh, as Jesus is ministering. Boat means here a little boat, rowboat, along the shore, ready for Jesus to get in. Now, Jesus told us in Mark 1, 14 and 15, why he came. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand. Repent and believe uh, in the gospel. Jesus wants people to come to him. 
John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you've seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, uh, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up uh, on the last day. Jesus comes... Uh, to us, indeed, that people might uh, might come to him, might be drawn to him, might recognize their need for him. As Charles Spurgeon put it, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. We do need to come. John Newton said something similar. Two things I know. I am a great sinner uh, and Jesus uh, is a great savior. So Jesus wants people to come. He wants the crowds uh, to come, but we must come, as Jesus has told us, we must come repenting and believing, knowing that life is found in him and not in what he gives to us. Later in that chapter of John 6, you'll remember where Jesus has just said, everyone who comes to me will in no wise be cast out. Later on in that chapter, there's a whole crowd coming to him. And Jesus says, you're following me, not because you actually are coming here to repent and believe, but you just want more bread. You just want more loaves and fishes. So Jesus wants us to come, but not to, but not to come to him so we can get something from him other than himself. This is important. Jesus is never a means to an end. I follow Jesus, for instance. Uh, so that, uh, you know, someone might say to themselves, I follow Jesus uh, so that I can, you know, in some churches say this, so that I can get rich. Or I follow Jesus so that I can get healthy. Or I follow Jesus so that I can uh, make friends. I follow Jesus so that I can get married to this woman. I follow Jesus so that I can have uh, moral children who are growing up. in the. I follow Jesus so I can clean up my life. I follow Jesus to appear respectable. No! That's what all the crowds do. They use Jesus as a means to what they believe is a greater end. When Jesus says, no, you need to come to me to see me for who I am, that I am your life, not these other things. Jesus was not content with gathering a crowd or simply filling a pew. He wants us to come to him, repenting, believing. These folks were coming, but did not really understand Jesus or his mission. Now, we can get this messed up today. I think we would be happy with crowds, no matter why they're here. Not Jesus. No. Um, you know, we might think, well, as long as there's lots of people, we assume God must be in it. Anything that attracts a crowd. You know, if we just mention the name of Jesus, uh, it must be a sign of blessing if there's a crowd. No. Numbers is never the sign of God's pleasure. Come unto me, says Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. It's not about how many are in the pew. It's about how many have truly come seeking Jesus. Well, the crowds keep coming. 
the needy keep pressing. Notice what the Bible says. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, verse 9, because of the crowd, lest they crush him. He healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now, there's at least uh, two kinds of people we find crowding crowding around Jesus that day. Uh, Pressing around here actually means to fall upon, to jostle. You know, so they're getting, they're trying to, you know, they're jostling their way, trying to get, get a touch of Jesus. It has the sense almost of handling roughly, you know, Um, like maybe on a, I don't know, when's the big shopping day here? I remember once uh, lining up at 5 a.m. at a Walmart many years ago on whatever day it was, you know, cheap, cheap sales day. Oh, a computer was on sale or something. I never did it again. You get in the door and you're packed and you're jostling and you're on top of people trying to get, ooh, and then you get there and it's all gone. That's the picture. Pressing, jostling, handling roughly. Jesus himself actually, the Bible says, danger of being crushed. Pressed in his own person. So eager were these folks to get a hold of him. Now who were they? Well, the Bible says they were the diseased. They were the sick. That is, those who were scourged or under some kind of stroke or some kind of plague. Also, verse 11 tells us, unclean spirits were present in the midst as well. Luke fills out this picture for us uh, as he gives the account of this, uh, this incident in Luke chapter 6, 17. He says this about Jesus, Luke does, and he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples, great multitude of people, all Judea and Jerusalem, seacoast, Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Now remember, Luke is a physician. He must have been amazed. But Luke knows the distinction. There's folks who are diseased. And there are those who suffer oppression from unclean spirits. And they all come. We saw an earlier scene in Mark 1.32. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak. Because they knew him. But in his mercy and in his kindness, as these crowds come and they're jostling him, those who touch him are healed. But clearly for many, to touch Jesus here is simply, simply seeking physical relief. And as Mark pictures it, almost a violent self-seeking. They don't really care about Jesus. They're about to crush him. But it's all, it's all about uh, getting close to Jesus, laying hold of Jesus for some kind of personal gain, quite apart from a living relationship of faith to Him. There's a difference between that and the touch of faith. Remember this beautiful scene at the end of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is with His disciples after His resurrection. This is what we read in Luke 24, uh, 36. These words, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. It's after his resurrection. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. 
So the disciples are frightened and they're startled. Is Jesus a ghost? And Jesus says to his disciples, right here, touch me. See, I'm risen from uh, the dead. And of course to Thomas in the Gospel of John. Oh, Jesus so gracious. Thomas, put your fingers here. Touch me. And see. Now here's the thing. Jesus, of course, stoops to touch us. We've seen that in the Gospel of Mark. He calls us to come to Him, to touch Him, and to reach out to Him by faith and believe. Listen to a great father in the faith in the Christian church, St. Augustine, uh, who said this, It is by faith that we touch Jesus, and far better to touch Him by faith than to touch or handle Him with the hands. And not by faith. Listen to what he says, Augustine. It was no great thing to merely touch him manually, that is, to touch him physically. Even his oppressors doubtless touched him when they apprehended him. Think about when Jesus was arrested. There were all sorts of folks who touched him. That wasn't a great thing when they bound him and crucified him. But by their ill-motivated touch, says Augustine, they lost precisely what they were laying hold of. Oh yes, they were touching Jesus and they put him to death. Oh, worldwide church, says Augustine, it's by touching him faithfully or in faith, (laughs) reaching out to him in faith, that your faith has made you whole. This is what Jesus calls us to do, to come to him, to touch him. The fact is, if people press into Jesus for healing, for the betterment of an earthly life that will one day nevertheless end... How much more so must we press into Him for life that lasts for eternity, you see? Well, the crowds keep coming, the needy keep pressing, and the demons keep teaching. The demons keep, keep teaching. Notice what the, what the Bible says here. Uh, verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him. They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now again, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because verse 34 of chapter 1 said, He healed all those with demons, uh, demon-possessed, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now this reminds us again that Jesus is on the Father's timetable The time will come when the confession of Jesus as the Son of God by His people in faith will lead to the cross. But His work was not yet accomplished. And so these demons are strictly ordered, that is, rebuked, to be silent. Now they know who He is, but we also know the Bible says, what does Christ and Belial have in common? The Lord Jesus is not going to use demons to be his missionaries, but you. They know who he is, but they're to be silent. Now, don't miss this. Uh, Don't miss here, friends, the power and authority of the Son of Man, the Son of God. He orders them. He commands them. By what authority? Well, because he's the king. And he reigns and he rules. And the kingdom, he told us, is at hand. And and demons can only exist at the permission of of the Lord of glory. Don't miss this. 
You might remember that in the in the book of Colossians, this is what is said about the Lord Jesus for by him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And the Bible says in him, all things hold together. That means that every molecule in your body, your very cells, are held together by the Lord of glory who upholds all things. Atheists who deny Him, the wicked who mock Him, demons who hate Him, can only live and move and have their being at His Word. Oh, oh, how we need to know and embrace the truth of Jesus. But, but just as wonderfully, surprisingly, and perhaps shockingly, is what these unclean spirits do and say. The Bible says they, uh, they fell down before Him. It's actually, a, it's a, it's a, it's a, you could translate it as a continuous action. That is, they kept on uh, falling before Him. One translates it this way. Whenever they saw Him, as often as they set eyes on him, down they go. They fell down. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I seem to recall something about a demon, Jesus, and uh, falling down uh, somewhere else in the Bible. Uh, and you'd be right. Because you'd be remembering Matthew 4, verse 8. When Jesus is tempted by the devil. And this is what happens in Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You see, Satan wanted Jesus to fall down before him. But friends, Mark 3 gives us the reality. Demons must bow and do bow to Him. In fact, of course, we know that this is where this is actually where all of all of history uh, is going. This is what that passage at the beginning of our worship service mentioned to us. This is where this is where all of history is going. That all would bow before Him. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him, bestowed on Him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, that is, in all the created realm. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here's the thing, friends, of course, and bowing, uh, bowing before Jesus for the child of God who's full of faith, who's seen him not only in his power but in his mercy, uh, is not a cringing, fearful Angry bowing, like these demons, but instead it's the it's the bowing of um, it's the bowing of Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin at the end of the return of the king when the returning king of Gondor has been crowned, and here you have these four little hobbits, 
And uh, when he's crowned, they bow in adoration and worship of the king. But the demons also speak. The Bible says not only were they falling down, but they cried out. Again, it's this idea of constantly, or were calling out aloud. They kept on crying out. One translated this way. They were screaming, You are the Son of God. Now, as we picture this, again, this is no screaming and confession of faith. This is a fear. Writes one, they kept on constantly crying. What horrible confusion this was. Deep, throaty, raucous voices from the satanic world. The word you is intensive there. It's as for you, you are the Son of God. And we find that everywhere where Jesus confronts the evil realm. Matthew eight twenty eight. And when he came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So fierce, no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They cry out too. Again, Augustine. Augustine is helpful for us as he talks about how there's two confessions here. One by the demons who it's full of it's full of it's full of fear, full of anger, full of hatred. But the very same confession is, is found on the lips of the Apostle Peter. Uh, you are the Christ of God. You are the Son of God. And that's a cry in, in faith and in, and in love and in, and in adoration. And so there's, there's two ways that you can actually confess the truth about who Jesus is. One is simply knowing the truth about who He is, but hating Him, being indifferent to Him, could care less about him. And the other is confessing that he is the Son of God full of faith and love and adoration because you've seen him in his power, but you've also seen him in his mercy and in his, his grace, touching the untouchable and forgiving the unforgivable. And so you cry out with the Apostle Peter in faith, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But friends, notice simply this this morning, that demons do... And say, much more than many, we could say, a professing Christian does and says, even today. Because the fact of the matter is that when we think about the professing church in America or anywhere else, there's always those who might profess faith in Jesus Christ, but when they think about Jesus, the last thing you will see them doing is falling down before Him, acknowledging Him as the King. Well, He might be a good buddy or a friend, or well, it might be good to have around once in a while. I might come to worship maybe once a month and just give Him give a little bit of my time. But to see Him <laughs> as, the, as the King the wonderful and the merciful Savior, and to submit to Him my all. Oh. The demons can teach us. Wrote one, we should give God the same place in our hearts. Does this make sense? We should give Jesus the same place in our hearts that He holds in the universe. You see. 
Another said, uh, if you lay yourself at Christ's feet, he will take you into his arms. And that's what we've found to be true in the Gospel of Mark. Said another, Jesus Christ demands more complete allegiance than any dictator who ever lived. The difference is, he has the right to. Because he gave you life. And he's actually given his, his life to death for your salvation and your redemption. How much more might he claim uh, our allegiance to him, said J.C. Ryle. No man, no man, no woman, no child ever errs on the side of giving uh, too much honor to God the Son. Oh, we can learn. Because, in fact, yes, we bow before Him. Yes, we must confess He is the Son of God. The end of his uh, chapter on Christ in that same book by Machen, Christianity and Liberalism, he sums it up this way. He says, The liberal Jesus, despite all the efforts of modern psychological reconstruction to galvanize Him into life, in other words, to to make uh, the liberal Jesus live, He remains kind of a manufactured figure of the stage. You've made up a kind of Jesus that doesn't really exist. Very different is the Jesus of the New Testament and of the great scriptural creeds. That Jesus is indeed mysterious, who can fathom the mystery of his person, but the mystery is a mystery in which a man and a woman or a child can rest. The Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern reconstruction, or any Jesus we might make up in our heads, says Machen. The fact is, He's real. He's not a manufactured figure, suitable as a point of support for ethical maxims, but a genuine person whom a man, a woman, a child can, can, can love. Said Machen, men have loved him through all the Christian centuries. And the strange thing is, that despite all the efforts to remove him from the pages of history, there are those who love him still. Have you learned something from the demons in this passage this morning? That the only proper response to Jesus is to fall down before him, submit to him, he is the king, to confess him, he is the son of God, he is Savior and Lord, but unlike the demons, not to fall down, not to confess in anger and hatred and wanting to get out from under Him, but falling down and confessing Him, bowing before Him because you love Him and because He has come to save you from all your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that you might truly be set free from all that burdens you, all your sin, all your oppression, all your burden, all your guilt, and all your shame. Because he is, of course, uh, our only hope in life and in death. May we learn from them even today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord, things that surprise us in the Word of God and Lord, we see these crowds coming around Jesus and perhaps not even knowing why they come. Even today, Lord, we confess that many would fill a church today or go to a church on a Lord's Day not knowing why they come or just because they've always come. 
But Lord, you call us again this morning to know that we are to come to you or to come to the bread of life or to come to the living water and to find in Jesus himself uh, our hope, our life, salvation, all that we're often looking for from things in the world around us. But to know that it's found in him and that we would reach out in faith and to touch him by faith, that we would see in him our Savior, our Redeemer, And our Lord, knowing that He's the only one who can forgive. He's the only one who can give life because of what He's done for us on the cross. And the Lord, help us then today, Lord, to to, to bow before Him, to confess Him, not in fear and anger, oh, but to see Him in His power and glory and might and mercy and grace that this great Savior has come, who has lived among us, died Uh, on that cross, in the place of sinners, that all who believe in Him might have their sin forgiven and might have life forevermore. Help us, Lord, to be found at His feet in worship, even today. Now we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.